Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new year of Successful-ish. We are in our seventh season. Oh my goodness. I am Sarah Michelle, the host of the Successful-ish podcast. And I have just been thinking so much over the last year and a half-ish. Um, I think we started in October and it's been a little over a year of just recording and having so many amazing conversations. And I've really been thinking about how much this podcast has challenged me to redefine success and how much this podcast has challenged me to continually let go of some of the beliefs that I have in my head about what success is and some of the beliefs that keep me stuck in a failure mindset rather than moving forward and continuing to pursue success. And it is something that feels like it should be easier than it is. And I think that for many of us, we still have the voices that we've heard since we were little kids, the voices that we've heard from critics, the voices we've heard from other people. And it takes a lot of conscious work to tell ourselves that these voices don't matter, to weed out the voices of the critics and to really discern which of these voices were actually valid and which were not. And I know I can say for myself that most of the voices of criticism in my life have come from people who are not living lives that I would want to emulate. And that is something that I have really learned through the years is that I I feed on feedback. I really love feedback and critique. I, I like to challenge myself and become the best version of myself, but I've become a lot more discerning over the years and recognizing that not all feedback is equal and that if I am going to accept criticism from someone, it's going to be from someone who believes in me, who wants the best for me, and who is living a life that I would want to emulate. And if someone has not achieved the success that I'm pursuing, I'm not necessarily as open to their feedback. So I thought that in this particular kickoff for the new year, I would dive back into the original concept of Successful-ish and the different categories that we talk about on this podcast and really reframe in all of these categories, I've seen that there have been things that are traditionally considered to be failure that have actually had a huge impact and contribution on me becoming successful overall as a person. So I'm so excited to share some of those life lessons with you. I would love to hear yours. And then we're actually going to take a little break um, before picking up the rest of season seven. And we're going to be resharing some of the past episodes that we've done and and just really spending some time marinating on all the wisdom that has come out in the last year. So I hope you'll join me in that. I hope that you'll use the time to catch up on any episodes you've missed or maybe re-listen to a few that really challenged you. See if you can pick up some new truth nuggets. And I am so excited to pick this back up with you uh, after this short break. So with that said, I am excited to dive into this kickoff episode for a new year and talk a little bit about what I've learned about redefining success. Another day, another task, think fast with a whole nother mission complete. Successful-ish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions to see. I'm successful-ish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieved. Successful-ish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to Successfulish. I'm Sarah Michelle, and I want to go on a little bit of a thought ramble today. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of redefining success, which is something that I know that we reference a lot on the podcast and we talk about a lot, but I really want to be a little candid about some different areas in my life that have really challenged me to redefine success because a lot of this I think is just so, um, I don't know what the word is, not concrete or intangible. It's really hard to wrap my head around. And I've just really been thinking a lot this last week that some of my best successes have been failures. And I've really been challenged to redefine my definition of success because in many ways I have felt like a failure. I felt like a loser. I felt like I am just not getting it. Like I suck. And I've realized that when I really think about it and I let go of societal expectations and these ideas in my head of what success is supposed to look like, I don't actually suck as much as I think I do. And so I just want to rant or ramble about this for a little bit. And I'm wondering if any of you can relate. I I have a feeling that many people can relate to this because I think it's just the human experience. But I wanted to get a little more candid with what it means to redefine success to me and how it's challenged me in my own life. And success for years was defined as the attainment of wealth and affluence. And it was defined this way until at least a year or two ago because that was the dictionary definition when this podcast first started. And it changed sometime in the course of coming up with this podcast and actually going live with it. And it's now defined as the accomplishment of an aim or purpose or the good or bad outcome of an undertaking. And I personally like that last one the best, even though it's labeled archaic uh, in the dictionary, whatever that means. I don't know if that's a really old definition that's not viable anymore. I think it's the best definition. And I do think that the accomplishment of an aim or a purpose is a better definition of success than fame and affluence. Um, But I also think that that's not always true because there's a lot of times like I would say that the inventor of the post-it was wildly successful and that was not the accomplishment of an aim or purpose. His aim or purpose was to create a super sticky adhesive and he failed miserably. He created an adhesive that barely sticks at all but it became the post-it. So he is wildly successful because of his failure. Very similar to, uh, is it amoxicillin? I think that um, someone was trying to create something else and ended up discovering it. There are so many successes that came from failure and did not come from the accomplishment of an aim or purpose, but they accomplished a different aim or purpose that maybe they didn't even know existed. So I just don't think that the dictionary has it right yet. I just don't know that there is a good definition for success. And beyond the dictionary definition, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance, excuse me, with success. And what I mean by that is that we often have one conscious definition and one buried inside. 
And I found this when I would interview people. When I first started this podcast, I interviewed probably over a hundred people and asked them their definition of success. And nobody said that it was the attainment of fame and affluence. Nobody said, I'm successful if I have money. I'm successful if I'm famous. Literally no one. However, people would say all these different things like, well, to me, success is a work-life balance. To me, success is happiness. To me, success is having a healthy family. All great things. But then you would ask that person, so would you consider yourself super successful? And they didn't. And I think that that's really interesting that it's like, well, by your own definition, you are successful. So why don't you think you're successful if that's your definition of success? And I think that there is a cognitive dissonance. I think that we have this, we know logically consciously that success needs to be redefined, but you can't just erase generations of definition that tell us that that's what it is. And I've realized too, like I might tell someone that my definition of success is just living a life I'm happy with, but there's still this nagging voice in my head if I lose or if I miss something in the traditional sense or if I'm lacking in fame or affluence. And I still consider someone with more money and notoriety to be more successful than I am. Like regardless, it doesn't matter what their personal life looks like. I don't even know what their personal life looks like most of the time, but I still consider someone who has more fame or more money to be much more successful than I am. And I think most people that I've interviewed or asked have felt the same. And I still consider someone who won in a traditional way to be more successful than I am. And I just, I want to talk about a few places in my life where the definition has really been challenged. And I thought I would run through our list of categories that we cover on this podcast and talk about a specific way that success has been redefined for me in each. And if you've been with us since the beginning, you know that the whole premise of successful-ish is just becoming a well-rounded successful, right? It's living comfortably, uncomfortably between the successes, celebrating the failure fun-filled process of figuring it out. It's really about having this attitude of not just wanting to have success in one place, like in our career or in our finances, which are generally the places that success is most um, quantified, I suppose. But it's about having a balance across every area in our life to be generally successful as a human. And so some of the categories that we feel like, um, my original co-host and I, Mark Mail, uh, that we felt like were really prevalent in terms of defining success were our relationships, our work or career, uh, our hobbies or our fun, our finances, our money, our health, our culture, and overall how that ties into our identity. So I want to dive into each of these and just share kind of an example of how my definition of success has been challenged in all of them. So, and this was interesting because I originally started with this episode, I was just going to share one example and I realized there literally is not a place in my life that I have not been challenged in redefining my definition of success. And particularly since starting this podcast, I find it very ironic because even though I am the one who came up with the word and the concept and I started this podcast, it challenges me. Every single week, every time I talk to a new guest, I'm challenged in another way to redefine success and to let go of some of these beliefs in my head that are holding me back. So 
Let's dive into some of these. And I'm going to be honest with you. It's really difficult for me to have this conversation because part of redefining success is reframing traditionally um, non-successful things as success. And it's really hard to share my failures or perceived failures with a world of thousands of people that are listening to this. But I, I really hope that if you're listening to this podcast, I hope that you can relate to some of these things and maybe feel encouraged. I know how good it is for my soul to hear from other people um, that have similar experiences. And I hope that that can be that encouragement for you. And if you can relate to this, if you have your own stories, like please feel free to email, comment, reach out. Um, I really, as much as I enjoy a good monologue, really prefer a good dialogue. So would love to hear from you all. Um, the first category that I want to dive into is relationships. I think traditionally, if we were asked to define a successful relationship, it would be the married couple, right? That's been married for 50 years and they're still in love. And I think that that is successful. I think that's amazing when that happens. I also think that there are a lot of couples that are married probably longer than they should be. I know a lot of couples that are technically successful in their marriage, but they're not living their best lives. They're kind of complacent. They are not really into each other. There's not really a spark or chemistry. They're not really having good sex. They're not really talking. They are just kind of roommates. Um, and I don't know that I can consider that a successful marriage. And this conversation first came up a few years ago when I was married. And I remember this question. I don't remember where it came from, but we had this question of what is a successful marriage? And my husband and I, at the time, we had very different definitions. And his definition of a successful marriage was basically that the piece of paper is intact. Like as long as you are still together, that's it. That's the successful marriage. And for me, I sort of felt like, well, is it really successful if you have the piece of paper, but you hate each other or not even if you hate each other, but like if you don't love each other or if you're not living your best lives, if you're just trapped in this relationship. And it was a really challenging conversation for us. Um, and particularly because both of our parents were sort of in both boats. I came from a divorced family and even though my parents were divorced and, you know, my, my ex, and I think many people consider that to be a failure, I've seen my parents become the best versions of themselves since being divorced. I've seen them really just glow. They've become healthier. They've become hotter. I don't know if that's weird to say about parents, but like seriously, both my parents are hitting the gym and getting ripped and um, they both have amazing careers that they're good at. And I've really seen them become more happy and more successful since being divorced. And with my ex's parents, they were still married, but I got to tell you, holidays were awkward. There was a lot of tension. And so it sort of created this conversation of which one is actually successful or are they both failures? You know, I don't know that there is a black or white way to define success in a relationship. And I think that 
I think that for many people in society, divorce is seen as a failure, right? That would be a failed marriage. (laughs) You get a divorce. And particularly for me, because I grew up in a faith community, divorce was super frowned upon. Like, there were a lot of faith circles where you just didn't divorce no matter what. I was in more of a faith circle that was a little divided on it, but mostly said that if there was infidelity, you could get divorced, but that was it. And that became a um, kind of a point of contention among churchgoers too, because there were many who were like, well, you know, it's all about the heart. It's all about the intention. So if you can work through infidelity, like you're obligated to do so. So people had all kinds of different views about what justified divorce, what didn't justify divorce. Um, There were many in the faith community who felt that abuse was grounds for divorce, but there were also many who felt like it wasn't. And I can tell you that I received really terrible counsel from a pastor of a small church in New Hampshire. And I was told that abuse is a made up phrase that women make up to feel justified in our anger because we're natural grudge holders. And that at the end of the day, women just needed to not be bored and they needed to give their husbands more sex. So his solution to save our marriage was that I needed to get a hobby and screw my husband more, which was not helpful at all. Um, and I was told when I when I shared that with other people, I was told some really awful things. There were people who were told that uh, the Bible says to turn the other cheek. So if you are in a physically abusive relationship, you know, you just got to take it and submit. I had other people tell me that they were sort of asked what they did to provoke their spouse and that they needed to be more obedient. Um, that is not a successful marriage or relationship. And I respect any faith that anyone comes from, but I cannot accept a God that cares more about the institution of a marriage than the two people in it. And that is where I stand on that. I don't think that there are any grounds for mistreatment or abuse in any capacity, physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, I think that At the point that you are no longer respected as a whole and autonomous individual, that's a failed relationship. And for me, this definition was really challenged because I really felt like a failure because my marriage failed. And I, I mean, I killed myself trying to make it work. I literally, if there is a technique out there to save a marriage, I tried it. I read all the books. I probably, um, I probably no joke read over a hundred books on marriage and relationships and trying to make it work. I, I went to marriage counseling most of the time by myself and I, I really tried everything to make that relationship work. And the reality is that if you have a partner who doesn't want to be a partner and is not willing to make it work, you cannot on your own make a relationship successful. It's impossible. And when I when I legalized my ex's decision, um, at that point, he hadn't talked to me or acknowledged my existence in probably close to a year And I finally just made the decision to legalize his decision and um, 
terminate the piece of paper, respect his decision to divorce emotionally and decided that I wanted to at least have the opportunity to be with someone who wanted to be with me. I really struggled with that because I did have a lot of people in the faith community coming at me and telling me that it was wrong, that I I needed to stick around. And I remember having those conversations and saying, stick around for what? Like, what is there to hold on to? There is no marriage. Like, how do you hold on to a marriage with someone who literally is not acknowledging your existence? I don't know how to do that. There, there is nothing here. The marriage has been terminated. So I'm not terminating a relationship. I'm just legalizing the decision. That's it. And I really struggled with having so many people tell me that what I was doing was wrong, that, you know, God was going to be mad at me, that I was setting myself up for continued failure in life. I, it was extremely difficult and I really felt like a failure. I felt like a loser. I felt like, um, I just felt like I was a failure at relationships and, What I learned through that process is that as much as it sucked and I would not wish it on anyone, it was just the worst season of hell that I've ever had to experience. It also was the best worst thing that's ever happened to me. And I can't look at that relationship and say that it was a failure because honestly, I wouldn't be where I am today if not for that relationship. And I wouldn't have the wisdom that I have if it were not for that experience. That experience was for me what it took to get through my brain what I was worth and what I deserved in a relationship. That experience was what prompted me to really throw myself into research about abuse. And I think like many people, I assumed that abuse was just physical or I assumed that abuse was like really constantly bad and obvious, you know, it was an obvious villain and it's not, it's, it's not that way. A lot of times abusive people are also really great people. They are really loving and charismatic and sweet. And that's why people stay with them so long. It's not because I just had all kinds of self-esteem issues and wanted to be with an asshole. It's because I wanted to be with the person who I loved, who loved me, who was amazing part of the time. And I, because they were so amazing, I just, you know, you can't commute, compute in your head that hero and villain can coexist. We're not really wired to think that way and society doesn't back that kind of nuance. And so what happens is that this person begins to become abusive or unhealthy and we think that they're just having a bad day or they're going through something or they're in a bad mood. And what was really interesting about studying abuse is how common it is. And we deal with it all the time, whether it's a partner or a parent or an employer or a colleague or a pastor or um, a landlord, whoever it might be, these toxic qualities are very prevalent because that's what we learn as a society and we pass them forward. And because when we hear the word abuse, that seems like such a big, crazy word, we often don't recognize the 
um, the more discreet ways that it's happening, the more covert ways that it's happening. So for me, just going through that and learning that has dramatically changed the way that I carry myself, the way that I engage with others. Um, it's completely changed my life for the better. And so I, I really, in all honesty, I have to say it was a successful relationship. I I learned what I needed to learn and I had really sweet moments. You know, I try to not throw out the baby with the bathwater. And while there were some really bad moments, uh, there were also good memories too. It's all a mixed bag. And um, learning how to take that and sort of keep the sweet moments, but also keep the more painful life lessons has been a challenge in and of itself. And it's just made me so much better as a person. So that was the first way with relationships that it really changed my definition of, I can't say that it was a failed relationship. And I can't say that if I were still married, that would be a successful relationship. I think that a successful relationship is one that serves its purpose. And the second way that that really stuck with me was when I went back to dating. Um, again, you you think of successful relationships being the ones that last forever. But what I learned in dating is that you can actually have a very successful short-term relationship. And growing up in the church and purity culture, it was sort of this underlying um, – and sometimes not even underlined, sometimes it was just flat out preached to you, but there was this belief that you were supposed to date with the intent of marriage. And if you got into a relationship with someone and then you broke up with them, you were basically training yourself for divorce, which if you didn't grow up this way, I realize that sounds a little nutty, but that was kind of the understanding that we grew up with. And so I I kind of believed that every relationship needed to last forever. And what dating taught me is that sometimes it takes a while to figure out who someone really is. And sometimes you just have to let things run their course and then you grow and change. You know, if you meet people and you're at one place in life, let's say you're at like a two on the scale of life and you meet someone else who's at a two and it's great. But then let's say you both move on to a four or five and then you realize you've become different people. You've gone different directions I think that's okay. And I think that there is a way to end a relationship or to change the terms of a relationship without it being a failure, without it being a big drama. And I've had people that I've dated and we've realized, you know what, we have mutual respect for each other. We have a really great friendship, but this is probably not a lifelong partnership for whatever reason. And so, you know, you give it some time and then you're able to transition into a really great friendship. And I've had other people that I've dated and it's been really amazing for a certain amount of time. And then we've kind of realized, you know what, we're moving on with career and life. Like you kind of just thank each other for the time that you had and you move forward and breakups don't have to be heartbreaking. I think that many of them are. Um, but I don't think they all have to be. I think that there are ways to have a short-term relationship and still consider it a success. There's still good moments, good memories, 
and you become a better person as a result of it. And I think that that view has seriously rocked my world and my understanding coming from a very conservative view where you, you know, don't even really date until you find your potential spouse and it's you and them forever. And it's very, um, it's very one-to-one, um, kind of serially monogamous, but in the context of almost like a scarcity mindset, like there's only one person that you can love for your whole life. And I just don't think that's true. And I think that opening my mind to that and not just with dating, but learning in the relationship with myself to learn to be in a better relationship with myself and to love myself more has made me realize that I I want to be with someone who brings out the best in me, who makes me the best version of myself. And when that is no longer the case for whatever reason, I think that it can actually be really loving to set the other person free rather than to just try to continue to force something to work that isn't working. And I want to be really clear that I am being descriptive, not prescriptive. I am not telling anyone that they should break up or get divorced or what is right for your relationship because the only person who knows what's right for you and your relationship is you and whoever you're with. I can't make that decision for anyone. I can only tell you in my personal experience, these are some things that I've learned. I've learned that it is really important for me to have a healthy relationship with myself and that sometimes that means saying goodbye to people who I once was close with because I've grown and moved on. And I think the other part of that is when you come from an abusive background in whatever context, if you've gone through any kind of trauma, whether serious, whether a micro trauma, whatever, Sometimes our hurts attract other hurts. Misery loves company. And I think sometimes what draws us to someone is that we have mutual woundings. And I think that that can be okay. I think that sometimes it's really helpful to have someone who understands our wounds because they have the same. But I also think that as those wounds heal, sometimes you might realize that that was really what brought you together and that it's not actually an ideal relationship and that is okay as well. So just some of my rambles of what I've learned in relationships. I Look, relationships are tough. Relationships are... Um, impossible to understand. That's why there's so many books on them and movies on them. And that's why people will be studying and failing at relationships for centuries to come. And I think that it's really challenged me to rethink how I view success and being in a relationship. And I have learned that sometimes what is perceived as a failed relationship actually makes me a much more successful person. Uh, The next category is work, and this is the one where this whole podcast started, um, trying to run a business. And, you know, I had my cute little hobby business that was making no money because I was planning on being a stay-at-home mom. And uh, when that plan was abruptly changed on me, I sort of found myself in a position where I had to become a real business really quickly. And... 
I felt like a failure. I felt like I I wasn't able to just instantly produce 70,000 in personal income. I wasn't able to just magically grow my business. I wasn't able to magically figure everything out. And um, I felt like a failure. I felt like I sucked. I felt like I was losing it everything. And it was through someone else's eyes, through someone else pointing out these accomplishments I was having. And from their perspective, they were really admiring me and saying, hey, look at like, this is amazing. You, you know, are, you have a media feature. You are speaking to groups of business owners. You are building a brand. You have a website. You are doing these media interviews. You know, look at all these awesome things that you're doing. And I really had to begin to recognize that success is a process and that you're not a failure in the process. You're not a failure until you stop. As long as you keep going, you're just one step closer to figuring it out, which is ultimately success. Success is not instant. It's not an overnight thing. It's something that you have to continually build up your success to get to a place where you are full of successes. You're successful. I think that's basically the gist of the word. And I really was challenged to rethink that. Um, And a couple other places with work where I was challenged with that, uh, I was finally getting to a place where I was just about to match my corporate salary. I was... um, I was just getting like back on my feet doing well and COVID hit and I lost my freelance job right at the beginning of COVID. It was probably not even a week into quarantine and, um, you know, this company did the same thing a lot of companies did. They panicked and they pulled resources. They, you know, they let me go. They stopped spending um, and that was a huge hit. It was a huge loss. I felt like a failure. I felt like I had been trying so hard for the two years that I worked for that company. I was probably, not probably, I definitely was putting more effort into making that company successful than I was my own. And I don't know that that was ever perceived. I think that, um, I think there were different communication styles and that, um, the, there just wasn't a clear definition of what was wanted. So that right there was a very difficult challenge of trying to be in someone's head and trying to understand what they want and with a moving target. And I really was um, just busting my butt. I was spending time and hours that I wasn't billing for just on my own doing research to try to make the company better, to try to offer more value to the team. And when I was let go, I felt like a failure. I felt like, okay, I, I'm i not valuable enough for this company to think that I'm worth keeping. They view me as an expense, not as an investment. They view me as a, um, a liability, not an asset. And that was really challenging for me. And, uh, Through that process, it challenged me because that was more than half my income at the time. I was basically living off of that job. And I somehow, even with a pandemic, even with people um, panic pulling their budgets, I made up that entire income on my own in the last three quarters of the year. And despite 
the pandemic. And, you know, overall, um, my end numbers were probably just about the same as they were the year before. So bottom line, it didn't look like I had made any improvement. But then I looked at the income that I had lost, which was probably somewhere between 30 and 40,000 from this freelance job. And I had made that in my business, which was a huge, like a 40,000 increase in revenue is pretty sizable for a small business. Even though these are small numbers, that's a big percentage jump. And so I really had to redefine my definition of success and say, you know what, even though it looks like a fail because my bottom line didn't go up this year, it's also a huge success that I stepped up to the plate and I realized that I I can. And I had my first year where I was fully dependent on my own salary just by myself. No outside help, no side jobs, no freelance, no nothing, no um no government assistance. It I really proved to myself that I could create a salary on my own even if it wasn't the salary that I wanted. And it challenged me to to redefine that definition and uh, a little later on, I decided to try to interview for a corporate job. And my thinking was that I really wanted to build up the recurring revenue end of my business. I, the, the person one-on-one model service model just wasn't sustainable. I wanted to be able to put a lot of money back into the business to upload systems and softwares and really get a recurring digitalized process going. Um, So I decided that I would get some experience working with a bigger company and do that for a year or two. And I interviewed for this job and it was intense. I think that by the end, we'd probably spent between 10 and 12 hours together. There were uh, aptitude tests and IQ tests and I probably interviewed with 10 or so people in the company. And um, it was a really intense, multi-part interview. And I was a little surprised when I got the job offer, the salary was less than half of what I had asked for. It was pretty low. It was um, It was actually lower than the corporate job that I had had maybe six years ago for a lesser position. And so it was pretty small. I um, And I decided rather than just take that, I decided to come down on my salary expectations, but also have my bottom line for what I was worth. And I stood firm. And you know what? If I'm going to be working somewhere that requires me to come into the office, and that's 40 hours a week. And realistically, I know myself, I know it's going to be more than 40 hours That's time that I'm not investing in my own business. So now I don't have time to invest in my business. I'm also not making enough money to put back in my business. I'm barely making enough money to provide for my own income. It's not even going to be that much better of a situation than I'm in now. I just couldn't justify it. And at the end of the day, um, we went back and forth for a while and they decided that they just weren't willing to budge on their salary negotiation or their salary offer. And again, it felt like a failure because I didn't get the job. And I think that for most of us, we would say that's a fail. If you apply for a job and you don't get it, that's a failure. You are 
What's the original definition of the success, the accomplishment of an aim or purpose? If my aim and purpose is to get a job and I don't get it, that's by all accounts defined as a failure. However, I think this was a win for both of us. I think that when it comes to um, just like dating, when it comes to partnering with an employer or a client, you have to be mutually into it. It has to be the right fit. And sometimes that rejection is not personal. It's just about having different expectations and different priorities. And I think it was a win for them because I think that they're looking for someone with lesser experience and who has a a smaller price point and who is more local to where they are and can be in the office more often. And I completely respect that. So I think they're going to find someone who's a better fit for what they want for their company. And for me personally, it wouldn't have been a good fit for me. I wouldn't have felt like I was really valuable in the company. I wouldn't have felt like I was really a part of the company. I would have just felt sort of more like an employee. So I wouldn't have had as much drive and motivation to bring my best to the role and to be committed to the vision for the business. Um, And it also was a win for me because... There was a point in my life not that long ago that I probably would have just accepted it. And I would have just thought, well, this is what someone else thinks I'm worth. So that must be what I'm worth. And it was a huge win for me to just mentally go through the process of really having to think about what what value do I bring to a company? What energy do I bring to a company? And at what point am I underselling my value? And there, um, I want to have a whole separate conversation about that. So stay tuned for that another day about determining our value in a very subjective world. But there was a point where I would have just let someone else tell me what I was worth. I There was a point in dating that I would have just gone on dates with whoever was available. There's a point in career where I would have just taken whatever job was there. And I think that sometimes when it comes to um, vocation anyway, not so much with personal relationships, but I think there comes a time in vocation where we do have to take a job that is, quote, below us because we have to pay the bills. But I also think that it's really important to have a long-term picture and plan and as best as we can to stick to our worth and not in an arrogant, um, just making arbitrary numbers. I think that a lot of what was challenging for me was really thinking about this idea that my, my worth in terms of salary is so negotiable. I mean, you work in marketing or content or branding or any of those related roles and you could do something for a small company who thinks that that's worth 30000 and you could do something for a company that thinks that's worth 200000 And it's not that different in terms of the scope of work. It's really just their understanding of the value that it brings. So that was really challenging for me to figure out, okay, how much value do I bring this company? And I had to really think about if I implement what I know, how much money am I going to make for them? Am I going to raise their revenue at least by the salary that I am asking per year? And I think that it's a different way of thinking about our value and our energy. And for me, even though I lost the job, 
I consider it a huge personal win because it did make me think about negotiation differently. It made me think about my value and worth differently. And it made me think about how I go about applying to jobs differently. So those are a few different ways um, that traditional success has really been challenged. And I think in terms of success vocationally, a lot of that is subjective and based in comparison. And I think that it's really hard because I can look at some companies and by comparison, I'm very successful. I think that percentage-wise, the amount that I've been able to increase my revenue year to year on my own without any extra help or resources, I think has been very successful. And I think it's more than a lot of companies have been able to do. I think the fact that my doors are still open after two years of a pandemic makes me very successful because a lot of companies were not able to do that. I think that the way that I've been able to run a company that I still enjoy doing. I still love working with the clients that I work with. I still am able to enjoy the life that I'm working so hard to create. I think that makes me successful. I also think that there's a lot of other companies that would make me look not very successful. I'm pretty small potatoes still. And uh, in a lot of ways, I think that if I were to go on Shark Tank, i I don't know if I would be called a wantrepreneur, um, but I would definitely be told that I'm not ready yet. I would definitely be told that I need more time, more work, more proof of consistent sales year to year. I'm not at the point where I'm bringing in six figures consistently. I'm not at the point where I'm a multimillionaire. So it's all comparative. It depends on which way I look of whether I'm a success or a failure and ultimately I have to decide what I want. And what I want is to move much further ahead. So I'm focused on those goals and I know what it will take for me to consider myself successful. However, I also know how far I've come and that it's not doing myself any good. It's, it's a disservice to myself to consider myself a failure because I'm not. So that process of being able to look at success vocationally has really challenged me, excuse me, it's challenged me to think about what that looks like. And I think that for many people who lost their job during this pandemic or who have lost their job at another point in life, which would be considered a failure, that's what inspired them to go out on their own or to find another job and become wildly successful and happier. So I think that when it comes to work success, once again, that definition is really variable and it really comes down to whether it's a traditional success or not, does it make you more successful as a person? Does it make your life more successful? The hobby and fun world is always kind of a fun category. It's sort of a catch-all for just the things that we spend our time with um, that are not necessarily related to vocation. And this can be different things for different people. I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of ways that I could go with this. I could talk about hiking or reading or writing or all kinds of ways I spend my time. But 
One particular one that stands out uh, is that I train in Muay Thai boxing and Krav Maga, which is an Israeli self-defense. Um, and I love it. I've been doing it for maybe six or seven months now um, in the general martial arts world. And I really love it, but it has challenged me to again, redefine success. Uh, when I first started off, I started in karate and I only did it for a month, a month and a half. There was a two week little trial before I officially signed up for my first month. And I only did it for a month and a half. I, um, committed to going every day, sometimes twice a day, because I knew that there was a belt ceremony coming up and, I'm wicked competitive. I did not want to wait another four months for the next belt ceremony. So I really wanted to get enough classes to get promoted. So I worked my little tail off um, to get that yellow belt. I, I did home practice and, you know, the whole nine. Um, and I decided in the course of that month and a half of doing karate, even though I I worked my way up and I succeeded in that I earned my yellow belt. I also quit the night that I earned my yellow belt because I had decided, you know what? I just really don't enjoy this. I feel like it's not the right form of self-defense for me. I really don't like wrestling with teenagers. Um, it just wasn't the right fit for me. And so I I quit after a month and a half, which could be seen not as a success. However, I view my one month as a success because aside from the success of earning the next bell, I also learned a lot about the karate philosophy. I learned a lot about what makes karate different from other martial arts. And I learned that that wasn't my preferred style. So again, that failure became a success. I ended up transitioning into Krav Maga and Muay Thai, which I love. Um, and again, worked really hard. I am one of the few that actually goes, uh, four days a week. I go to every class that's offered. Um, I would go more often if they had more classes. I, I just absolutely love it. I, um, I practice at home. I subscribe to an online boxing platform that kind of goes through different steps in training. And I do home workouts on the weekend. I also watch a lot of videos. A lot of my social media feed on Instagram is Krav Maga trainings and videos. Um, so I really go out of my way to try to become better at self-defense and at the specific art of Krav Maga and Muay Thai. And I happened to be uh, out of town. I was on my road trip when they did the belt ceremony. And I think that the next time they do another belt ceremony, I am also going to be out of town. And so because of that, I'm kind of becoming the world's best white belt. Uh, I'm going to have a white belt forever. <laughs> and in many ways, this uh, is when you think about Krav Maga, or you think about any kind of martial arts, you consider people with the higher belts to be more successful. And what I found is that's not always true. Uh, for one, there are people, there are many yellow belts who started a good month or two after I did. So even just by um, time experience alone, that's not an accurate metric. I have also fought with white and yellow belts who are way scarier than some of the 
blue and green and orange belts um, who are still kind of struggling to get the basics. They just have been going longer, so they've earned these belts. So it really changed my my definition of just because the the world might brand something as more successful doesn't necessarily mean it is. And I think that it's been a good reminder when I think about, you know, just because someone has a lot of fame and notoriety in a specific industry doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. And there could be someone who really doesn't have a lot of work experience or notoriety in their field, but they're super smart and they're going to be the best person for the job. I don't think that a resume is the end all be all for whether or not someone is going to be successful or bring value to your company. I don't think that, um, I don't think that many of the traditional metrics that we look at are necessarily tell all indicators. I think that we have to do a little research. I think that there are some general assumptions that could be made. You would think that someone who has been doing something longer would be better at it, but it's not necessarily the case. Some people are just really good at sticking around. And I've seen that in many work settings where I see interns who are really sharp and committed to the job and they're really smart and they have so much creativity and so much to bring. And then I look at supervisors and directors who, you know, have years of experience and they really don't know much. They're they're not good at their job. They don't know how to think other than the one way that they've been trained. They are not creative. They're terrible managers. So I don't think that tenure is a direct correlation to success. I don't even think it's a direct correlation to experience. I think that um, I can say in my life, like I've experienced, I've had a lot more life experience in my 30 some years than some people have had in a much longer time. And I know that I've met people younger than me who have had a lot more life experience than I've had. And I think that the experiences that we have in life and what we learn from them, that's what really makes us successful and what gives us all these things that we need to contribute to the success of others. So in terms of hobbies, fun, sports, um, you know, and I know I think we did an early episode on this, Mark Mail and I, about talking about hobbies and the difference between having a hobby where you're competitive and having a hobby for fun. And um, I don't think that you have to necessarily win or have a ton of accolades to be considered successful in something. I think that if you have something that just fuels you and makes you happier, makes you happier, sparks creativity. I think you don't have to be an amazingly successful artist to be a successful artist. If you slap some colors on a piece of paper and it looks stupid and no one wants it, but it makes you happy and it sparks your creativity and it clears your mental health and brings you joy and makes you a a nicer, kinder, happier person, which then is contagious and makes other people nicer, happier people. I consider that a huge success. So I think that that is another way that we need to change our definition. We don't always have to have outside validation on something for it to be successful. And, you know, I can think about hobbies that I've had to do where I became successful with them, but I really didn't enjoy them. And I don't know that 
if I have success in a certain sport or hobby, but I hate doing it, that really doesn't contribute to my bottom line of being a successful person. So I think that when it comes to our fun and our hobbies and our outside work stuff, we really need to look at how is this affecting the rest of me? How is this impacting my mental health? How is this affecting the work I do, the relationships I'm in, um, the income that I make? You know, maybe your hobby earns you more money. That was a really good conversation with uh, Mark Sorbara early on, I think season one, where he talked about how he basically does his hobby in a way that funds his hobby. And for him, he's become very successful in that. And I think that that is a really awesome way to approach having hobbies. I think in other ways, my hobbies don't make me any money. My hobbies cost me money. Um, I spend, that's probably my biggest expense is, um, besides like rent and basic bills, that's really the only thing I invest in. And I spend money to get training to become better at my hobby in Krav and Muay Thai. So when it comes to hobbies and fun, I think again, we need to look at how it really is impacting our bottom line of being successful. Let's talk about money. Um, Money is really challenging. Uh, Money, I'm not going to lie to you, money is a more difficult struggle than anything else in terms of me finding success. Um, It is the number one thing that keeps me feeling like a failure. And a lot of that is because I chose to continue to be an entrepreneur. You know, when it first started, when I first um, had my hobby business and my husband drained our bank account and all that, I really didn't have an option. I just, even if I was interviewing for jobs, there weren't that many to apply to. It was going to take a while. So I really didn't have an option other than to be an entrepreneur. I had to do something to make money. And that was the most immediate way that I could do it. So a lot of it is that I have stuck with that. And so um, making money as an entrepreneur is going to be immediately harder than making money working for someone else. I think in the long run, you can be wildly successful, right? There's no glass ceiling. That's why people go on their own. However, in the short term, I'm not going to lie to you. It's really freaking hard. It is really freaking hard. And part of that, and one of the life lessons I've learned is that revenue is not the same as income. When you're working for someone else and you get a paycheck, minus taxes, that's all yours. When you're working for yourself, you have to put money back into the business to make money. And that's the reason that most businesses fail is that they don't have enough capital. They don't understand how much money it takes to really be successful. And especially if you're not in a commodity type brand, if you are more of a, um, or commodity business, excuse me, if you're more of a branding business such as myself, If you're service-based, if you're offering something where you have an education component like I do, right? I have to educate people on what branding is and how to think about it differently. That's a huge expense and challenge. And this was also something I learned from watching Shark Tank is that you'll find over and over whenever a company comes in and there's a huge component of education or branding, sharks tend to not want to invest because they know how much money it's going to take to make it happen. So I have had a lot of those struggles because I am a service-based branding business. I have to have 
education for my customer. I have to have brand awareness. Nobody knows who I am and I have to tell people who I am. Um, that is really hard to do. And money is largely based in influence. And when I divorced my ex, I also divorced basically my entire community. Um, and I think more so they divorced me. Like most of them just stopped talking to me when I stopped going to church and, I sort of stopped wanting to nag people for friendship that wasn't real and sort of felt like if the only time that these people are, quote, friends is when I'm sitting in a chair not talking to them on a Sunday, they're not really friends. I I have no need for this in my life. And so because of that, I literally didn't know anyone. There was a very small handful of people that stuck with me through that that I held on to in the course of friendship um, I, I literally knew no one. I was building my influence from zero and that takes time. That takes a lot of time. I have to tell people, this is who I am. This is what I know. This is how I can help you. And I have to start from ground zero. And that is a challenge. And like I said, revenue is not income. So the more that I have grown percentage wise, I'm making a lot more than I was when I first started my business, but I'm also spending a lot more to keep the business afloat, to keep it growing. So that's a huge thing that I've had to learn is that income and revenue are two very different things. And just because you are making more revenue does not necessarily mean that you are making more income. Business takes a shit ton of capital to keep it going. Um, The other thing is that a lot of people who have a lot of money are not good with their money. They are good at spending their money. And a lot of times when you hear people say that they want to make more money, what they really mean is that they want to spend more money. It's not that they want to make more money because if they wanted to make more money, they would be focused on growing their revenue and keeping that long-term picture in play. They want to spend more money. They want to be able to to have that immediate gratification. And in that regard, there are many people who are, quote, more successful than me, who have more money, but I am more successful than them in terms of having a long-term plan, enjoying my life. I... I talk to a lot of people who have a lot of money and they are not very happy with their lives. They're they're working a job that they complain about all the time. They hate Mondays. They they are not happy. And then they go into their weekends and they're so tired from the job. They're not really doing anything on the weekends. So maybe they're more successful financially because they're making a lot more money than I am, but is it more successful if you're not really enjoying your life? And I've had to really ask myself that because I have in my head this expectation of what number I need to hit to be successful. But I also can look at my life and think, okay, you know what? It's a trade-off. And yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not happy with my current income. It needs to grow and I wish it would grow faster. It's stressful and frustrating. However, I'm also generally really happy with my life. I rarely complain about my job or my day-to-day. I love Mondays. I was just able to spend an entire month traveling across the country without stress of working. I I had the freedom to do that. I 
I have trade-offs, right? I, um, at this point in time in my business, I've chosen because I don't have a dual income. And to be honest with you, I think it is really difficult to live in this country on a single income at this point. Life is crazy expensive. And because I live in New England, which is one of the most expensive parts of the country, I've chosen as a trade-off to rent a basement apartment in someone's house rather than to have my own home. And that is a huge goal of mine to have enough finances to be able to have my own home. However, I have learned that not having my own home does not make me a failure. This was a short-term trade-off and decision that I made to be able to put more money into a business so that I can make more money so that I can have my own home. And the reality is that there's a lot of perks that come with that as much as it comes with the downsides and my perceived idea of it not being successful. It also comes with me not having to stress anytime something goes wrong with the house because that's my landlord's problem, not me. Um, it comes with, for me personally, a landlord who loves to cook and keeps me well fed, um, which sometimes has a uh, negative effect on my weight, but uh, is really awesome to come home and have home cooked meals delivered to me by someone who loves to cook. Um, it's come with a lot of perks. And when I really think about finances and money, I think we need to think about it in a different way. I don't think that more money necessarily makes you more successful. And I think that we have seen that there's a lot of people who have just more money than they could ever spend in a lifetime and they're miserable people. They have horrible marriages or relationships. Maybe they don't even have friendships. They are stressed. They have a ton of health issues because they're stressed. Um, a lot of people with a lot of money are overweight because, again, they're stressed and they're working all the time. So they're eating at their desk and they're not doing anything with their life. I don't think that that is successful. I think that money is awesome. And I think that money does help you become more successful, but money is not success. Money is just a catalyst to success. I think the real success comes from you, from me. I think that there's, we've seen, there's so many studies where people inherit an influence, um, an inheritance, or they, they win the lottery or, you know, whatever. They come with this huge sum of money and then a year later, they're right back where they started. And I think that if I were given a million dollars tomorrow, yes, I could become more successful. 100% there are advantages that come with money. And especially the way that the society and this world are structured, the wealthy have an advantage. And it might be an unfair advantage. I think that the wealthy have opportunities to pursue success that the non-wealthy don't have. I think that the wealthy have better opportunities to get into college. And we have a really unfortunate employment structure that values college degrees rather than experience and character of people. I think that the system of how this country is set up is stupid. I think it's absolutely stupid. I think it makes no sense. I think that 
There are amazingly brilliant and talented people that we will never know about just because society has these bullshit metrics in place that say that you have to jump through these hoops to be considered a successful person. And I love that in this country, we do have so many opportunities for entrepreneurship and for people to break out of that. And I love that there are so many success stories of people who have broken out of that, but it's hard. And I can tell you from personal experience, it's really freaking hard to do stuff without money, without those resources. When you don't have connections and you don't have extra spending money to invest in things, I I firmly believe that is part of the reason why I'm not moving faster than I'm moving is that I just don't have the finances and the connections to do so. Um, and I know that with that being said, I have advantages that other people don't have. You know, I I was able to get a college degree and I did grow up in a family that for the latter part of my life did have financial stability. So even with advantages that I've had, I know how hard it is being where I am now and trying to do everything from zero. And so I have just huge respect for anyone who is growing up without those advantages and kind of starting behind the starting line. I also think that the most, some of the most successful people are the ones who have had to overcome the most challenges. And I think that while money is part of the metric for success, I think struggle is the other piece. I think that I have to go through the struggles that I've gone through. I have to learn what I've learned and I have to learn to be creative with nothing before I can be creative with something. And I think that the lessons that I've learned in how to build a business with zero dollars and how to build a business with a few dollars and how to build a business with a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars, that is preparing me to know what I can do with millions of dollars. And um, not to sound like a Shark Tank junkie, but this is also something that comes up on that show where they'll tell people money is just a catalyst. You have to be able to prove that you can do sales on your own. And if people aren't buying it, then you haven't proven it. Why would someone invest money just for you to fail more expensively? So there have been so many lessons around money and wealth that have seriously challenged me. Um, and I, there's so many things that I could say about this topic. Um, if you caught the episode with Joyce Rojas, I think it was season one, uh, she's a really awesome influence. She was very helpful. And I, I did a few of her money mindset courses that were really helpful, um, as well as some of the practical pieces of arranging a budget, learning about investments and how to make my money work for me, how to be smarter with that. So as far as becoming more successful in money, there are so many resources out there, but it really comes down to the mindset. And at the end of the day, money is really just a tool. And to become more successful with our money, we have to become more successful in other aspects. I don't think that money is often the first place to start. I think that it starts with our identity and our culture and our health and our relationships. And it really starts with just becoming a healthier person 
and then learning the basic tools that come with money and putting them to practice and being patient with that. So uh, for anyone else who struggles with viewing success as monetary, um, this is one metric of success. And again, money is not the success. Money is a catalyst to the success and the success comes from you. Uh, moving into my last two categories. I know this is a little bit of a longer conversation today. I want to talk about health. Um, I think that when we think of successful health, unfortunately, in this society, we think about like a size two six pack. We think about guys with broad shoulders and ripped abs. And we think about girls with, um, somehow, huge boobs, huge butt, and a little tiny stomach, which is not realistic. Like if you know how the body works, if you know how fat works, like your boobs are generally the first place that you lose weight and the last place that you gain it. Um, So unless you're one of the few lucky ones that's really naturally well endowed, Bigger boobs is going to come with a bigger tummy. It's almost impossible to have a flat tummy and big boobs and be naturally framed that way. Um, I, I think that there are some really impossible body standards. And I can say in my own life, there's like a five-pound grace period. Like I got a lot of shit when I was growing up for being too tiny. And I had... um you know, my mom would frequently worry about me. I had friends' moms that would worry about me. If uh, I remember one friend's mom telling my mom she was worried that I had an eating disorder because I rarely ate at her house. And that caused a whole upstir of, you know, basically like force feeding me food and making sure that I was eating. And the reality was just that this friend's mom was just a really crappy cook. Like, it had nothing to do with me not wanting to gain weight. It just had to do with her food being inedible. Um, and I got a lot of comments about being skinny, whether it was concerned comments about how I needed to gain weight or judgmental comments about how I needed to gain weight or hateful comments about like, well, the only reason that people liked me or the only reason I got an A or the only reason I got the job was because I was a size two. Um, I just got a lot of negative comments and, I think that, you know, we we talk a lot about fat shaming in this society. I, I'm just going to say skinny shaming is a thing. It really is. And I think that even saying that out loud, there's going to be people who are like, oh, shut up. You have no right to complain if you're thin. And you know what? It's just as damaging on the self-esteem. And it's not just for me. I know plenty of girls who really struggled because they were a size zero or a size one and they were shamed for being skinny. They were hated for being skinny. I think that on the other side, um, I also got a little bit of judgment when I was a little bit overweight. And it's like, there's like a five pound grace period to live between. And that's just impossible. And I think that, I think that a lot of times as a society, we're lazy. We want to be able to look at someone and within just like half a second without even knowing them judge whether they're healthy or not, whether they're successful or not. And the reality is that you don't know. There could be someone who is heavier looking, but they're wildly successful with their health and their nutrition and their fitness. And there can be someone who's a size zero or a size one and is super unhealthy. 
So we got to stop being lazy when it comes to health. Um, and I know when I, like I said, I've always been on the more petite side. I've always been, for the most part, very thin, um, very petite. And when I was married, I gained weight for the first time ever. I think it was largely attributed to stress. And I gained about 45 pounds in the course of four years of marriage, which is not a lot in the grand scheme of things. And I technically was still on the okay, like on the doctor scale. I wasn't technically overweight. However, when you're short, every pound shows up. And for me specifically, my weight mostly shows up in my face and my neck and my tummy. It just does not, I'm not one of those lucky girls where it goes to my ass or it goes to my thighs. Like it goes just to all the worst places. Um, the only advantage of having that weight gain was that my boobs were phenomenal. Um, but I went from a two to an eight, like really quickly and when I was going through the the whole separation period and I knew that I just, I needed to do something, I needed to get myself healthy um, physically, emotionally, mentally. So I joined a gym. I joined a high intensity um, HIIT training gym and I was working out this high intensity workout every day for three weeks, I think. I was going seven times a week and I was also like really watching what I was eating and I gained 20 pounds. It was supposed to be a six-week weight loss challenge and I just kept gaining weight and I was pissed and I remember asking one of the trainers and being like, what the hell, man? Like, I'm eating like a freaking bunny rabbit. I'm going to the gym every day. Like, I don't understand why I'm gaining weight. And what I learned was that muscle weighs more than fat and that while cardio is a great way to lose weight, um, weight training and strength training is actually sometimes a better way to lose weight. And I needed to go through that transition of becoming strong. I needed to convert some muscle. And then once I had some muscle, the fat started burning off and I went back from an eight to a two again. Um, and there was just more muscle. And then from there, I continued building muscle. I shifted into a different type of workout. I stopped doing the the hit interval training. So it wasn't as much with the, the cardio and the weight training. And I went more into the boxing and, um, Krav Maga, which is a lot of, um, it's a different kind of strength training. It's not like weightlifting. It's, it's boxing. You're punching, you're kicking. It's very, um, physical impact. You are fighting with other people. So your adrenaline is up. It's, it's a different kind of physicality. And I was doing that, you know, four times a week and then also going on hikes and doing my own thing, um, doing yoga on the side. And I, again, was gaining a lot of weight, but it was all muscle. And I went from a two to an eight again, um, because again, when you are short, like every pound just kind of shows up. It's not like you go from a two to a four to a six, like you literally just, you're a two and then one day it doesn't fit and you're an eight. And it was all muscle. 
And so it's been, it's really challenged me to rethink the way that I view success of, you know what, maybe success is not being a size two and being this like really thin popsicle stick. Maybe success is just letting my body do what it's going to do and knowing that I'm being healthy. So if I'm eating the right foods and I am exercising and I'm training and I'm working in a way that makes me more successful and that happens to net me out at a size eight or it happens to net me out at a size six or wherever that is, maybe it nets you out at a size 12 or a size 20, whatever, that's success if you're healthy. And I think the other piece of that is knowing that health, again, is not just physical. It's mental and emotional. And a lot of what I get out of health is the emotional and mental impact. So it's not actually super healthy for me to train as a runner per se, because if I'm training just in running and my goal is just, okay, I'm doing this to stay skinny, mentally and emotionally, that's not very healthy for me. That's that's really not. I, I would become very, um, you know, OCD about checking the scale, about how do I look in a pair of pants? It's not healthy. For me, it needs to be emotionally healthy as well. And so when I was doing the HIT training, for example, I'm really glad that there was a lot of strength training because it wasn't just about losing weight. It did actually teach me that it was good to build muscle. And there was a pride that came from being able to move from five pound weights to 25 pound weights and to hit those milestones and to be able to be stronger. And as I was stronger physically, I learned to be stronger mentally and emotionally. And the same thing when I train in Krav and Muay Thai, I've learned that it's not so much just about the exercise and it's not even so much about learning how to fight. It's it's almost more so learning how to fight back or that it's worth fighting back. It's taught me mentally, you know, for so long in my life, I kind of allowed myself to be the punching bag and I didn't mean to. I don't think I realized what was happening. I sort of just thought that that was how I was loving people. You know, people are angry. They got to have a place to let it out. And it didn't really phase me. I was strong enough to handle it. So I did. And I really wanted to be there for people and support people and be the best friend I could. And I just, I became the punching bag. And what I've realized is that I'm worth fighting back. You know, if someone wants to start a fight, I need to redirect them and tell them, look, if you're angry, you're having a bad day. That is not my fault. We can talk about this like rational humans if it is something that I can do to change things. But if you're just being a dick for the sake of being a dick, go take it out somewhere else. And the mental and emotional strength that has come with strength training and learning how to fight and learning how to fight back and learning how to stand up for myself, whether it's um, standing up for myself in a salary negotiation or standing up for myself in a relationship and saying, you know what, this behavior isn't okay, it needs to change, or um, standing up for myself with a client and standing really firm in expectations, whatever that is. There are so many correlations with our physical health and our emotional and mental health, and I think it's really important. And part of being successful is keeping all of that in check. 
Um, and I think when it comes to nutrition, uh, if you listen to the the episode, the conversation that I had with Ryan Drozd, really good conversation about nutrition and how to go about that. Um, there's also some really great conversations with Coach Matt, Coach Matt Purcell where we talked about fitness and how to kind of keep that all in check. Um, but anyway, I have done some health cleanses in the past. I'm not big into dieting because I do know that I'm a very, very goal-oriented person. And for me, um, the rigidity of dieting is not super healthy for me. But I have done some health cleanses where I've basically um, – I did the, it's called the Daniel plan and it's kind of like a a whole foods paleo type thing where basically you eat like a bunny rabbit for a couple of weeks. You just eat like vegetables and nuts and seeds. Um, and then you gradually introduce like lean meats, turkey, um, you know, maybe fish, and you kind of work your way into eating all whole foods. And the best advantage that came with that was that you really cut out all of the sugar. And it actually permanently changed the way that I engage with sugar and the way that I shop because I had not really paid attention before to how things are, um, how much of our food is not actually food. And knowing that there were certain like sugars and oils and fats that I wasn't allowed to eat, I had to look at the back of everything that I was buying And most of the packaged foods, even the stuff like at Trader Joe's that looks like it's super healthy, was really not. It had all kinds of unhealthy stuff in it. So it it retrained the way that I view food, which was really awesome. However, I also learned in that process that I am mentally a much better person with cheese and bread and coffee and booze. Like, I don't care that it would make me possibly healthier to cut those things out. I don't care that it would make me have a flatter stomach and I don't care. I just don't care. I am mentally a better human when I can eat cheese and bread and I can drink coffee and booze on a regular basis. And you know, at the end of the day, I don't smoke, I don't sleep around, I don't do drugs. I think that cheese and bread and coffee and booze are okay vices. And that was something that I had to figure out for myself and feel like, you know what? At the end of the day, even if these things are traditionally not making me more successful in the uh, traditional health physically sense, they're making me more successful overall. I My morning coffee is the best part of my day. That is part of my morning routine. It's just something I enjoy that puts me into the moment that I'm in. And I've decided that I would rather have that joy and that moment than have a flat tummy. And I'm okay with that. So I think that when it comes to health, we need to really think about what it looks like, again, to be successful as a whole person and not just what society tells us is successful within that one metric. And last but not least, uh, let's talk about culture. This is a really tricky one and one that I also struggle with um, probably uh, as much as finances or relationships, um, which let's be honest, are all, all of these are struggles in their own way. Um, but I just read Culture Code. It was a really interesting read. And the author mentions some case studies where they sort of had a group of people and they had one person planted in the group and they would act really positive or really negative and see how it impacted the group dynamic. 
And what they found was that when he was really positive, everybody was positive. Everybody rallied. They solved the problem in half the time and everyone was high-fiving and woohoo, we got this. And then when he was really negative, people were like, yeah, this is stupid. I don't really want to do it either. Totally rubbed off. And then they did one where he was very negative, but another person in the group who was not a plant chose to go against the culture and to be very positive. And he was able to override and get everyone excited and to stay focused. And it was a really interesting read just about how different cultures are formed. There's a lot of different case studies. He talked to a lot of um, very famous sports coaches or business leaders, people who have been responsible for shaping very successful cultures. And really the takeaway, at least for me, was that one person can change a culture. And culture is something that I pay a lot of attention to um, as a branding expert because it makes a big difference, right? Like there there are cultures where, um, you know, for example, there might be a company that makes billions of dollars and they talk about how they value their employees. However, maybe they don't really have flexibility and they don't really have high salaries. And it's sort of a very traditional type culture where even if they, you know, are, are nice to the employees, the culture is still that the employees exist for the success of the company. And that's just expected versus if you look at someone like Sarah Blakely, who just sold her company or sold the majority of it, um, and is now, you know, worth a billion plus dollars, she chose to thank her employees by giving them one-way tickets or uh, full round tickets, excuse me, full way, round trip. I can't even think straight anymore. I've been talking too long. Round trip tickets to wherever they wanted to go as well as $10,000 to take a vacation wherever because she's created a culture where they are all creating a company together. And she recognizes that she would not be where she is without her employees, without people giving up their time and talents to make this happen. So she's created a culture where people feel like they're friends. They feel like they're a part of this vision. It's not just Sarah Blakely running a company with a bunch of employees. It is a team of people that is making this vision happen. And I think that when it comes to businesses, a lot of companies try to manufacture a culture. And I saw this when um, the first time I ever thought about company culture, I it was my first job uh, right out of college. I worked for an agency and I was asked to create a company culture. And it just didn't make sense to me because the way that they were defining culture just wasn't really accurate. And um, it it was just a really interesting I, – I was almost afraid to talk about – slight interruption to grab a phone charger. Talked my, uh, talked my phone to death here. Um, anyway, I was asked to describe or to define the company culture, and I was kind of afraid to because the culture honestly was one of stress. It was one of push and pull. It was one of – burn your employees out to the point that everyone wants to quit and then throw them all a party so that they forget how bad it is. It was a lot of bus throwing, um, you know, blame shifting. It That was the culture. And 
what they were trying to do was create a culture of fun by let's turn one of the office rooms into a bar so that people can have happy hour at four o'clock every day. And let's have a culture where we put up a ping pong table or let's have a culture where we wear jeans on Friday and snacks in the break room. And look, these are really awesome things and they can certainly be a reflection of a culture. But if it's not genuine to the culture that exists, it's manufactured, it's fake, it's bullshit, and people see right through it. It's not actually a culture. You can't you can't manufacture a healthy culture. A healthy culture comes from healthy people. And any company, I I swear to you, whether it is a solopreneur just starting off or whether it is a CEO of a Fortune 500, I would say 99%, I'm leaving room for the percent that I might not know because I don't know everything, but 99% of the problems in a company come down to the leadership. It all gets traced back to the top and it all comes down to the culture that they set for the company. And I think that it can be really overwhelming to, for most of us, it's almost like a safety thing. I think for most of us, when we walk into a room, we're trying to identify the culture that we're in and we're trying to fit in, right? We don't want to be that person who just like walks into a culture and disrupts the whole scene and stands out and then everyone talks about how weird we are. And I love the people who are confident enough to do that. Um, I think uh, Jojo Siwa, Siwap, Siwa, I think uh, the the cute little blonde with her little bows and pigtails um, is one great example of that where no matter what room she walks into, she is Jojo and it doesn't matter what the culture is. She's going to be who she is. I so admire that trait. I don't have that. I I have um, – I'm very good at being a chameleon and I struggle with culture because I have for most of my life felt incredibly out of place. I have often felt misunderstood and like I really want to play the game that everyone is playing. I just don't get it. I don't like it. Um, I feel this way with dating. I understand the dating game. I understand playing hard to get and, you know, being flirtatious and like – Look, I know how to play the dating game. I could probably get any guy I wanted if I played my cards correctly. And I don't say that because I think I'm particularly awesome. I say that because there's sort of an unspoken game plan that society follows. That said, it's not real. It's not authentic. And I have a really hard time being shallow in and authentic. And I don't mean that as a slam at all. I just mean I am wired for a type of connection that many people find exhausting and overbearing. And sometimes I wish I could turn that off, but I can't. Without that type of connection, those deep, meaningful, authentic, honest conversations, I'm like a flower starving for sunshine. Like I I literally feel myself and my soul just start withering because I am starving for that. And it is really difficult because those those people are hard to find in today's society. And I think a lot of that is fear and a lot of um, aversion to conflict, aversion to criticism. It's really difficult. And I often feel like a failure because I just don't fit in anywhere. I And I interpret that to be, you know, if I don't have 
tons of people knocking at my door wanting to hang out all the time. I must not be a very likable person. I must not be a very valuable person. And I have really had to challenge myself in this and realize, no, I just... I'm just not satisfied with the level of friendship or relationship that others are because I'm wired in a different kind of way. And I think that as I've learned to change my own culture, I have found more of my own people. And this is really hard to do because let's say uh, with dating, for example, right? If you've been in the online dating scene, you know what a shit show it is and you know how horrible it is. And I... I found myself getting sucked up just like everyone else where I thought, okay, well, this is just what dating is. I just have to accept this. And I dated some people who probably didn't deserve my time, who definitely didn't deserve my time. Um, But I just accepted it of like, okay, I guess this is what dating is, even though it sucks. And I had to get to a point where I decided, you know what? I don't like this and I'm not willing to deal with this. And I started changing the culture and I started having really honest conversations. And it almost became a joke um, of how many men I sent to therapy or how many men I took off the market uh, who shouldn't have been on the market because I just started having conversations and saying like, do you really feel like you're happy with the dating scene? Like, do you really feel like you're happy with these dynamics? Like, do you really feel like it's okay? Like, do you really feel like it is okay to ghost someone to just like stop talking to them without any explanation? Do you really feel like it's okay to like build up a intimate relationship with someone and then the next month do the same thing to someone else and then the next month do the same thing with someone else? Like, do you really feel like it's okay to have multiple intimate relationships with multiple people at the same time? And again, I'm not saying any of this with judgment. I just started realizing I wasn't happy with this. And so I started asking people like, explain it to me. Are you really happy with this? What am I missing? What am I doing wrong? And what I found over and over was that initially there'd be pushback like, well, that's just how it is. Yeah, of course I'm happy. And then I would get a call sometimes a day later, sometimes several months later, and I would get a call or a text that was like, you know what? I just keep thinking about that conversation and you're right. Like, I'm not happy. This isn't okay. And I found that when I really decided, when I took culture out of the picture and I took society out of the picture and I decided, you know what, if I weren't basing it off of what I think is available to me and I were just on my own on an island defining how I thought dating should look, how would it look? And then I stuck by that. And what I found was that I started finding more people who agreed with that. And the same thing with business or um, friendships or any aspect of my life I started learning how to isolate myself enough to sort of think, what would this look like if society weren't in the picture? If I didn't feel like I had these limitations or this this frame that I had to paint within? What if there were no lines to color within? What if I got to create it? What would it look like? And initially, it feels really lonely and really overwhelming. And Over time, as I stood strong in that, I began realizing that one person really can impact an entire culture and you have to decide internally for yourself what a successful culture looks like and what cultures you're willing to participate in, what cultures that you're going to participate in but have some boundaries, kind of keep it at a distance. 
you have to decide that. That's a personal thing. And I also think the other piece of this, and I loved the conversation with Josh Harris about this. Definitely check that episode out. Um, is that every culture has their own success metrics. So I may be super successful in one culture, but fail in another. And this culture shock can be tough. And this was really tough when I left the church. You know, I was considered very successful in religious circles. And then I left the church and my entire society, everyone that I knew no longer viewed me as a success. And that contributed a lot to me feeling like a failure because I felt like, okay, I'm looking around at thousands of people that I've known in my life and not one of them is telling me, wow, you're an inspiration. You're successful. I'm just getting a lot of like, oh, I'm really sorry that you're struggling right now. I'm really sorry that you're failing right now. And it wasn't until I started being a little bit more brave and owning my story and experience that I began to find there was an entire other culture of people hiding out who was in the same boat that I was. And a lot of that tied into dating for me because I knew that I was no longer wanting to be in that faith purity culture, but I also really didn't want to be in the like hookup partying culture. And I just felt like, man, is there nothing in the middle? Like I either have to be super Christian or just like not care about anything in life. And I, it took me a while to calibrate and I began finding other people that also couldn't be defined. And I think that that is a big part of groupthink as well, is that it's easy enough to be a part of a religious culture because you have a label for it. I could say I'm a Christian and all of a sudden I had anyone else who was a Christian. We at least had a starting point to start the conversation and figure out like how aligned we were in that when you don't have a label, you have to do a little more work. There is nothing that I can cling to, you know? If I just say, oh, I'm spiritual, well, what the hell does that mean? That means something different to every person. And so because we're such a lazy society, there's no, like, club or group for <laughs> for spiritual people. Like, it doesn't exist, but when you start talking and really getting to know each other, you find that you have better conversations and you create a richer culture because your culture is no longer monovisioned. It's no longer one way of thinking. Your culture becomes more diverse. There's more perspective. There's more life experience. There's more viewpoints of how people are seeing the world. So your culture becomes just so much richer with the diversity in life experience and in view. And I think that's a really amazing thing. And I think that I have to decide on my own what success looks like and what I want my life to look like. And sometimes that is really lonely before it gets fun. But I think that it's worth it to create a truly successful culture for yourself. And I think that when we think about being successful a lot of times we look to the culture that we're in to validate whether or not we are. And again, I think that that's too much responsibility to give someone. And I also think that um, it doesn't allow room for growth. And I think that that was part of an interesting conversation with Josh Harris as well, you know, is that we both can relate to this idea. And he had this wild success within the culture of Christianity. And when he decided that it was time to grow and challenge those views, 
he wasn't able to just directly say like, well, I'm still a success. I just have different views. It, it instantly flipped where he was now considered a failure in these circles and had to go try to redefine success somewhere else. And I just think that for people who are able to think clearly and be open-minded and, um, they care more about what is right than being right. I think that if we begin to have a bigger expectation for people to be able to think we can find the people who are willing to, I think that a lot of times with culture, we assume that there's going to be one way shallow thinking and that just creates a dynamic where we get stuck with that. So I think that a lot of being successful in culture is recognizing the dynamics that make the culture what it is and being a part of it and knowing how to fit in and respect the culture without sacrificing who you are in the process. And while still being able to stay firm in the culture that you want for your life and what that success looks like for you. And it's also okay to culture hop and to go from place to place and appreciate the different aspects from different communities. So that is my extra long ramble for today. Um, like I said, I've really been challenged over the last couple years, particularly in really redefining success and looking at my life quite differently and realizing that as much as I want successes in these different categories and I want success in my relationships and my career and my hobbies and my health and uh, my finances. And I really want to create all of those different successes. I also don't want to be unequally balanced. At the end of the day, rather than having success in one category, I really want to be successful as a person. And to be successful as a person means that even if one category might be more or less at any given time, maybe I'm really focused on my career and my finances, so relationships is on the back burner. Maybe I'm really focused on relationships, so my fun and hobbies take a back burner. Whatever that looks like, I think that it's really important to keep our whole person at the center of it. And to make sure that we're not just filling our successes in arbitrary categories, but that we are becoming successful as individuals. So thank you for hanging out with me, for hearing my ramble. I would love to hear what you've learned about success and how you've been challenged to rethink success and redefine it. Um, I just want to hear your stories. I want to hear your thoughts. And if you have a a story that could inspire someone else, please send it to me so that we can share it on the social pages. Um, the email is embracetheish at gmail.com or you can hang out with us online at successfulish.com or Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn at embracetheish. Success and failure, none of opposite ends. Curveball hits, gotta know what to bend. The attitude will affect destination. 
interview determines when you're gonna make it. Live between successes makes life rich. Live in every moment successful-ish. Live between successes makes life rich. Live in every moment successful-ish. Hey, successful another day, another task, think fast with a whole nother mission complete. I'm successful-ish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions hey, to see. I'm successful -ish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successful-ish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my hey, sleeve. Successful-ish. Another day, another task, think fast with a whole nother mission complete. Successful-ish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions to see. I'm successful-ish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successful-ish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope, wait, then I roll up my sleeve. Hey, all this weight on my arms need both flex. And this race, probably I need most steps. Had to show the learning curve, hope I don't crash. Hit your nerves when reserves got low cash. When I fail, realize that it won't last. You made it through in the past, just look back. Successful ish, you can see how the contrast fires and wins. Use the past and the bounce back. You can never win if you never go and do it. Figure is a hard road, rarely ever cruising. Embracing all my wins with a handful of losing. Expect the drought season when the plan's going fluent. I can never really feel it's all how you view it. It's all a lesson, just depends how you use it. Get all the data and keep it all exclusive. Never ending journey and the growth is therapeutic. My identity is not in what you see. I am the better me. Mistakes others make, I see. Have a teacher me. Compare yourself to others is an insult to tragedy. We will make unique, gotta use again collectively. Broke down my goals and a few look toesome. Can't take them back cause you already spoke them. Easily regressive, you don't stay focused. Focus, live between success and moments. Successful Another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. I'm successful ish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions to see. I'm successful Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successful ish. Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest, hope with. Then I roll up my sleeve. Successful Another day, another task. Think fast with a whole nother mission complete. Successful ish. Pick up the weight, press on, and act on the visions to see. I'm successful ish. Sit back and bask in the glory of all the goals I achieve. Successful Lose a stack, get it back, reinvest. Best hope with that I roll up my sleeve.